So here's some exciting news from On Being Studios. Our podcast, This Movie Changed Me, is back. Each episode is hosted by our very own movie-obsessed executive producer, Lily Percy, and is like a love letter to movies and their power to teach, connect, and transform us. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance, but if you love Groundhog Day or The Wizard of Oz or Black Panther or Coco or even The Exorcist, you're already ahead. This is also a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. This season features conversations with Seth Godin, Naomi Alderman, and A.O. Scott. New episodes are out every Tuesday. If you haven't listened yet, it's time. Learn more, as always, at onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. And so we must imagine a new country. These are words of the poet, journalist, prophet of our times, ta Coates. This hour, he's with us in a conversation that is joyful and hard and kind, direct and soaring and down-to-earth all at once. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. We spoke at the 2017 Chicago Humanities Festival before an audience of 1,500 people. It was a beautiful cross-section of humanity, black and white, young and old. The Rockefeller Memorial Chapel was brimming with energy, and the technology didn't play along, so we ended up adding an extra microphone as the conversation began. Okay, so we're going to... It feels kind of old-fashioned, which is kind of refreshing, mm -hmm. maybe, So you don't like holding a microphone. I actually have three... I know. <laughs> I know you have to forget about because the other two. Because what I have two. to say is so powerful that it requires three, evidently three microphones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's an honor to be here with all of you and with Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I, I always start my conversations, um, whoever I'm speaking with, asking about the spiritual background of your childhood. I wonder how, I mean, one thing that you've written a lot about your childhood, you've written, for example, that you didn't have Christian optimism, you had physicality and chaos. If I ask you about the spiritual background of your childhood, where do you start? Where's your mind go? Um, well, the, the first thing I think about is an, an absence of it. Um, because the African-American community, obviously the, the black church is so important. And it was important for my cousins, and it was important for my grandmother. And it was so absent in my house. I mean, this is probably not the way to think about spirituality, but as a child, what I understood is that people got gifts on Christmas, and I did not. And so there was this absence. Okay, these people are religious. I'm not, you know. Um, having said that, I, you know, I, I grew up, you know, as, as, I, as I think about it, I grew up with a heavy sense of what I would not call ancestor worship, but I would call ancestor reverence. Mm. So there was a strong sense that people before you had sacrificed, and they were the reasons why you, you would be there. I can remember like being a child and going to like various political events in the African-American community, and there was this whole tradition of saying libations you know, where you poured water into a plant, the plant representing the earth, and, you know, folks had gone back to the earth. And you, you would say names, and those names could be, you know, anybody from Malcolm X to Tucson Louverture to your Aunt Grace to, to whoever it was who you felt had somehow sacrificed um, for you to be there. And it wasn't until, see, this is why you had this job, because it wasn't until you asked that question. <laughs> it's <laughs> that a great I question, actually, isn't it? No, yeah. it is a great question. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, you're shaming me as a journalist. Um, but it wasn't until I, I, you asked that that I, I connected that to, because I talk about that actually a lot in my writing. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, here's something you wrote um, in your new book, in We Were Eight Years in Power, which is really fantastic. Um, you wrote, I can somehow remember 
all that I did not allow myself to feel walking away from that unemployment office and through the Harlem streets that day, just as I remember all that I did not let myself feel in those young years trapped between the schools and the street. And I know that there are black boys and girls out there lost in a Bermuda Triangle of the mind or stranded in the doldrums of America, some of them treading and some of them drowning, never feeling and never forgetting. And you know, that's spiritual background too. Why? That, that's... <laughs> no, I'm serious. Why? Because I feel to... like that, that feeling or not allowing ourselves to feel, that Bermuda Triangle of the mind, to me, it's inner life, which is just a way to talk about spiritual life. I, it may not be the way everyone defines it. I, you know, like I think about that, and um, I, like I talk about this in Between the World and Me, and I guess it's kind of highfalutin as that might sound. Well, I mean, I don't know any, like I think about like neurons. Yeah. When I hear that. And, and I recognize that when I'm writing, I'm, you know, doing something else, right? Like uh, I'm talking about it, like, I, it, you know, that, <laughs> you know, sentence would not sound the same if I said, you know, certain neurons in my brain fired and then, <laughs> right. you know, like I wouldn't, that doesn't quite convey the feeling. It's so funny. I mean, I don't mean to say it's not spiritual. I, it's just not as when I, when I write. Yeah. It's not what I think about. Which does not mean it's not there, I guess, but it's, it's not the, the process. It's interesting that you receive it that way, though. I mean, one thing, kind of where you are writing and thinking these days, takes off a little bit, and in some ways your career, from this, you know, that place, and in that same season that you were in that Harlem unemployment line, the campaign was starting for Barack Obama, who would become the first mm -hmm. black president. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the problem of the color line, which was language of W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. It's just a thread that runs through. Like, it's, it's been your fascination. Do you remember when you first um, read that or? Read Du Bois or when yeah, I became read first Bois. aware of No, yeah, well, when you read Color Line and how that, when that captured your imagination, what happened? Um, well, I had to read Souls of Black Folk at a very, very young age. I mean, I probably was like nine or 10. Yeah. Um, my parents, there was this book I had, and for some reason it had Up From Slavery, Souls of Black Folk, and I want to say Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man in the same book. You, you have to understand like how I was raised. There were just books everywhere. And in my house, uh, about 90% of those books were either by or about black people or the black diaspora and some. In some respect. Your father was a librarian. He was. My father was a research librarian, and he, you know, had loved books. So that, that mm -hmm. sort of thing, it would have just been around. And I read it, and then at the same time, I got to say, I didn't get it. Like, it, it, it's probably only in the last five to eight years, <laughs> as, you know, articulating that book, that I, I got it. I didn't understand blackness and whiteness and white supremacy as central to American history. And there are people around me that said that, you know, um, like they would say, you know, this country is built on our back. But the whole, I would, be, you know, I would wonder why. How do, how do you illustrate that? What does that mean? And I guess, and now I'm getting to the answer to your question. <laughs> um, it probably was actually during my studies of the Civil War that I got it. That it that what he meant by being the problem of the not just the problem for black people, not just something that people should not do but a thread that ran through all of American history mm -hmm. you know, d during that period. And, you know, thinking on now, he probably underestimated, you know. Yeah, I mean, he said the problem of the 20th, the 20th century, century, the color line, and for you, well, I would the argue, color line shape shifts, but it doesn't go away, and it's just, it's yeah, with us in the 21st. Yeah, and it was the problem of the 18th, 19th, 20th, and hopefully not 21st, but not looking like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about neurons a minute ago, and I do feel like one frontier we're on of advance is understanding our brains better. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, the color line is in our heads. Mm -hmm. And it's like we change laws, right? I mean, you, you go through this history of the Civil War and, and Reconstruction and, and how betrayed the promise mm -hmm. of those events were mm -hmm. because we didn't change ourselves. Ultimately. Yeah, and I, I think like that's hard for people to accept. Um, I mean, I guess the place, you know, in terms of the book, 
that I you know, most recently encountered it is the um, implicit idea that, that, that you know, President Obama was uh, prone to repeating that you know, the arc of history uh, is long, but it bends towards justice, right? And I, I just, I mean, that, that sort of you know, notion of destiny, you know what I mean? I, I don't know how you measure that against the very human um, practice of repeating you know, brutality over and over again. And beyond that, like, what about the people who, what, what if you don't um, believe in humanity as this kind of collective, but believe that every individual life is, a, you know, a, a unit in and of itself? And when that life is snuffed out, that arc is over. Um, and so people who were lynched are not a part of a long-term historical process, that in their minds, that's their life. And history ended the minute they were snuffed out. And so, you know, this kind of providential understanding makes them bricks in a road. Mm -hmm. um, in order to give it a happy ending, in order to say it was all worth it. Um, but I maintain it was never worth it. It was never just. It was never right. The process is never, it's always wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's always wrong. And I, I think it, um, I think there are a lot of things implicit in that that devalue, um, I would probably say not just the lives of, of African Americans, but the lives of people who live, you know, un underneath of the boot. And actually are demean the lives of white people too. Yes. If not in the sense of being on the other end of violence in the same way. Um, you know, you say this, you're really fascinated with the Civil War. You're really a student of the Civil War. You say something interesting I, I've never heard anybody talk about in this way before that, or just kind of, you know, it's one of these, these kind of very simple truths that someone suddenly puts words around and you see it. Um, that there's this, you say, for, and for black people, there is this, the burden of taking the Civil War as our war. E even that piece of our history is a history of white people. Right? That's, I don't know. The, the trouble with this book is I don't remember everything I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, I can say something. Yeah. No. I, mean, no. I can, can dance. Um, I should still dance. I think, yeah, right, so, so, well, let's, like, so. No, because it's, it's like eight pieces that I wrote over the course of eight, and I did reread all of those pieces <laughs> when I was writing, I guarantee you. Um, but I just, yeah, I don't, I don't remember. Everything. Okay. But um, I can, like I said, I've I have been there. Okay. No, but, but, okay, so, so the, so the story, <laughs> so where we are, and right. what you're writing to, and you become a voice of this, mm -hmm. is this shocking thing that I think so many of us have woken up to, that 50 years after the Civil Rights Movement, 50 mm -hmm. years after the March on Washington, even in the years of, um, of a black president, mm -hmm. um, how do you say it? Um, you know, that, well, also just that you grew up, that, I mean, the, between the world and me was really a dominant theme of that was the fear, fear in your body, for your body, mm -hmm. for your children. And one thing, and the vast energy that consumes, and what you said is, you know, we suddenly, some of us, suddenly saw that young black men and women were not safe on our streets, mm -hmm. not safe in their own neighborhoods. Um, and one thing you said is, it's the cameras that are new, not the violence. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, I think technology has always played this role. For instance, it's not like um, the first time, you know, John Lewis, you know, those marches were, were beaten crossing the yeah. That wasn't the first time it happened. Yeah. You know, it was just suddenly you had news cameras, you know, it could be But seen. that was an amazing actually story, actually, how everybody was watching the same channel back then. Right. And what movie, it was some movie. Oh, you, I have no about, idea. You probably it was in like a movie me. about Nazi Germany. And then that people started being beat on this bridge in Selma. Did they Selma, like cut the movie? And, and they then cut they through it? to the movie and they showed Americans not being treated like people. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I didn't You're even right. know that. But that wasn't, but like that wouldn't have been possible 20, 30 years yeah. before. You know, it was yeah. the technology that suddenly made it visible. And, and I, I think, you know, it's the same thing here. You know, uh, my previous book, Between the World and Me, is about, a, you know, a friend of mine who was killed by the police. Um, there were no camera phones. There was no Twitter. There was no anything, you know, and he just... Um, and that was 
Prince. Prince Jones, yeah. yes, yes. And, and when was that, like 2000, 2000 early 2000s? Uh, fall of 2000, he was yeah. killed. Yeah, and he was just swallowed into the abyss with all the lives of other, you know, black people who, you know, had been snuffed out in similar ways, just sort of were, were forgotten, you know. Um, and now people, you know, can see it. Yeah. The question remains how much that actually changes, though. Philando Castile was killed on camera. Nothing happened. Aragona was choked on camera. Nothing happened. Yeah. You know, no one went to jail. And so the question becomes, how much does this actually change? And I told you before we walked out here that I'm not going to ask you to be optimistic. Okay, but now you are? No, I'm not. Like, I was, because okay. I, I see that everywhere you go, you're telling this <laughs> truth. Uh-huh. And then white people uh-huh. want you to say, okay, so where can we find our hope? And yeah. I was watching you on Colbert recently. Somebody saw that. You know, he really wanted you to give hope. I mean, here's what I find. You know, when you, you write, our story is a tragedy, I know it sounds odd, but that belief does not depress me. It focuses me. Well, I believe that. I don't remember when I wrote it, but it's true. Well, I mean, you have... <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you don't, you, don't, you don't have hope or you don't want to use that word. No, that no, word, but, but you, no. You are, but there's a, there's a focus, there's an energy. You know, you know what it is? Mm-hmm. I don't actually think I'm that singular in this. I don't know, um, and I don't know if they're journalists here, but I, you have to understand that's my training. I was trained as a journalist. Yeah. Journalists go out and look for things that are wrong in the world, and then they write them. Yeah. And it is not the case that your editor says, okay, that's a cool story, but there's no hope at the end. <laughs> right, right. That's not a thing editors say to journalists, yeah. which is what I am. And so it, it's not so much that I even object to hope. You know, it's just that the thing I do <laughs> that's not a criteria for it. You, you, you know what I mean? It's not your calling. No, I mean, it's just not what I, and you know, the other things that influenced me, I was before that, I, you know, I was hugely influenced by poetry. Poets are not acts to be hopeful. Yeah. Um, when I was in college and I did go to school, I was a history major. That had a huge influence on me. If you want to be depressed, you should go to the University of Chicago's history department. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not sure why I get the question. Um, no, not that you asked the question. <laughs> um, you know, where, where I find you to be closest to what I think other people are wanting from you mm-hmm. when they want you to be hopeful is when you write and speak about Malcolm X. Huh. You know, you... Yeah, he gave me hope. He gave, well, you he talk did. about, he like, he gave... He, he presented more than anybody else the possibility of what you call collective self-creation. Right. Well, I, you know what? I would listen to his lectures, and I just felt free. Like, it's not like hope, like... This is like what, I think what people want is tell us that we're going to get past it's gonna be okay. this. Tell yeah. us it's going to be okay, yeah. right? So that's, yeah. that's one thing, right? Yeah. But there's a different kind of hope. There, there, there are people in the world who accept that their life ends in death, and that's bad, but that's what's going to happen. And then within that, they find, you know, joys and hopes, you know, in between. Oh, I, I have the ability. So for Malcolm, to, to me, it was I can speak about the world in a way that is reflective of my life and my community. I can do that. I don't have to calibrate my speech. I don't have to calibrate how I look. I don't have to calibrate how I walk to make other people feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have that right. And so that was, like, big for me as a writer. Like, when I, I started writing, um, there was a school of writing that says given that the audience is obviously when you reach to any size is not going to be majority black, that you have to hold people's hands, you have to explain to them, you know, and um, the Malcolm influence on me said, you know, no, you don't. Write as you hear it. Write as you hear it. And in fact, I I don't even think that's a, you know, um, a particular black thing because if you're black in this world and you... um, are gonna become educated on the, you know, what is considered mainstream art in this world, mainstream traditions, um, nobody slows down for you. 
Nobody is going to hold your hand, <laughs> right. you know what I mean, and explain, you know, the Brady Bunch to you. Nobody's going to do that. Catch up. <laughs> Catch up. Some people live like this. I know it's not what's around you, but some people live like that. Catch up. You know what I mean? We're on the next. You know what I mean? And that's just how it is. You got to be, you know, bilingual. You got to, you know, figure it out. You know what I mean? So if they have the right to talk and write like that, I have the right to write about Wu-Tang like that. Like, I can do that. I can say, catch up, catch up. You know what I mean? Like, I, I can do that. And that, that's a kind of, you know, freedom. I'm Krista Tippett, today with journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates as part of On Being's Civil Conversations Project. this phrase, um, black atheism, <clears throat> which I think means more than just atheism, that there's something, something in those two words together. <clears throat> but part of that, for a while, included this certainty that nobody would take you seriously. And yet, you're, you're taken very seriously. I mean, how do you understand what's going on that all these people are here, that, that white people like what you write and read, read your books and buy your books? Um, uh, how do I understand it? Don't hold our hands. No, I'm not. Tell I'm not, it straight. I'm not. Because I, I, the truth is that I don't understand it, but I'm going to try to think my way through it. it perhaps it's a simple answer, okay? Um, I think white people are human beings. <laughs> Thank you. I knew white people are human beings. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, because the, the, the question, and I, and I admit I've asked the question, presumes a kind of a distance that may not be there. Like, no, you know, like there isn't anything universal or humanistic in the black struggle that can you know, reach other people. So I think white people are human beings. I think black people are human beings, too. Um, I think uh, the experience of black people in this country, you know, as I was saying in terms of the boys, runs right down the middle you know, of the country. Like, you can't you know, really talk about the country without it. But I also think it's reflective of so many other struggles. Like at its root, it's, it's, it's power. And I think that the struggle, even though this is the lens we see it through here in America, is actually quite old. I mean, obviously there are particular details to it, but at its root, it, it's not a, a particular thing. I think that's it. <laughs> I think that's it. You know, so Ruby Sales, who is one of the great, one of the civil rights leaders, mm -hmm. um, you said to me, last year that a central quality of this moment we inhabit is a, a crisis of whiteness. Mm. You, you have this quote um, from James Baldwin that really stuck out at me. Uh, White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning to, how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist for or will no longer be no needed. No yeah. one needed it. Yo, when I yeah. read that, that was like getting hit by a truck. Like, it was so profound because what he was saying was that there actually, there is no Negro problem. <laughs> and that's how it's always, you know, historically been talked about. Oh, you know, even that, the problem of the color line. No, there's no problem of the color line. There's no, the problem is over here. It's not us. We actually are, you know, quite human. It is, and I think what he's referring to, you know, all of the things that a group of people do to remain in power, to hold that boot on somebody's neck. So as Jefferson said, you know, hold the wolf by the ear. That was how he talked about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, slavery, your enslavement. And then there's this irony that I'm so acutely aware of right now as I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know, what is it? I just want to see, I took all these notes. You know, you, <laughs> you write things like this. I can't find it. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, <laughs> just pick one. In America... <laughs> It is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. And you are right. And I carry that in my body, mm -hmm. right? In my white body, I carry um, that cruelty and that um, violence. And what do you say to people when they ask you that? Like, what do I do with my whiteness? My, the legacy of my whiteness? Um, Excuse my language, but I uh, tell them uh, to do the same thing I do with the legacy of my niggerness, and that is work for a world where my grandchildren, 
and likely, you know, great, great, great grandchildren are not niggas. And that they should work for a world <laughs> where their grandchildren and great, great grandchildren are not white. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it's, um, Because what that question presumes is a kind of, well, is there some immediate action I can do? Yeah. You know, to, to, no, to get out of this. No, this is like this. generational. Yeah, no, work and there's no immediate action that I can do to get out of this. Right. You know, what the realization is is that, you know, me and you are here trapped together. You know what I mean? That you're as trapped as I am. That once you are aware, you know, you, you're, you're in the cage too. It's a different yeah. kind of cage, a gilded cage, but it's a cage. Yeah. yeah. It's a cage. Yeah. It's a cage. No, it's a real cage, yeah. and that there's no real um, thing that will probably save you in this lifetime. But why should it? How long did it take to build this? You know, you're, you're just becoming aware of something that, you know, of a process that was going on long, you know, but before you were born. Um, so I think um, it's natural that the first thing you say is, how, how can I get out? Yeah. That quote um, about it being tradition and I'm not like saying that for effect. Oh no, like, I know. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not yeah. saying. I'm saying as a, yeah. as a way to, to answer yeah. your question. Yeah. Um, uh, that is just another way of saying that from 1619 to 1865, it was legal to torture black people. It just was. Yeah. It just was. That period is in fact longer than the period of freedom. And for a hundred years after that, it was basically legal to lynch black people. That was fine. That was accepted. Yeah. And in the period after that, it is now basically legal um, for someone you know, with a badge, if they feel afraid, to kill you. That compiles. Yeah. It, it compiles over time. It has effects. And so you know, the notion that you, know, you can just dance your way, like, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen. If it took this long to... Um, get into this, it's worth asking yourself how long it's going to take to get out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, you wrote a piece called The Case for Reparations, and I think that, that feels to me like it's an important message you're carrying. I just found this, you know, just this sentence in your writing about that, you know, just kind of and so we must imagine a new country. I'll just read a little bit more of this. It's because it's, it's very powerful and also beautifully written. Reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequence, is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. The recovering alcoholic may well have to live with his illness for the rest of his life, but at least he is not living a drunken lie. Reparations beckon us to reject the intoxication of hubris and see America as it is the work of fallible humans. Yeah, I mean, that's it. That's it. I mean, um, and what a, <laughs> what a lot of people want to do is they want to live the drunken lie. You know, they, they, they want to... Um, you know, I was working on that piece, and it was like... Because what people will tell you is... Um, well, I didn't have any slaves. I wasn't alive when this happened. Right. My, my ancestors just got here. And what became clear to me, you know, reading that is, okay, but you cook out on the 4th of July. Your ancestors weren't here. They played no role in that. They had nothing to do with it. Um, you take off for President's Day, but you, weren't, you had no part in that. Your ancestors weren't here. There are a number of um, patriotic rituals that folks have no problem participating in them as long as they can get credit for it. But they don't want the debits, see? You know, I want the paycheck. I don't want it to write a check, though. And that is a, um, a kind of, you know, in the piece, I think I talk about it, like, as a la carte patriotism. Yeah. You know, it's like sometimes friendship, you know what I mean? I'm there when I can get some, but when it's, you know, gets tough, man, I'm out. I wasn't, well, I had nothing to do with that. You know, but it's like, either you're in or you're out. Either you're part of it or, 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 or you're not. Um, I was not alive during the Korean War. Had nothing to do with it, but, you know, my taxes go to pay, you know, pensions, you know, for folks to this day. You know, I would not have been my choice to uh, 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 invade Iraq, 
but my tax dollars went to it. That's the way a state works, you know? And so I think um, what people want is they want to be a part of the state as long as it gives them something that they like. I wonder, um, some of the ways I've processed this last few years and what happened is that the election of Barack Obama, the election of a black man to president of the United States was this magnificent accomplishment that actually at the time was celebrated even by most Americans and people around the world in its magnificence. Mm -hmm. And that what we didn't understand is that that would also surface all the unfinished Mm -hmm. work we have to do to be worthy of that Mm -hmm. accomplishment. Mm And that's what's right out on the surface now. But I don't, I wonder, like, that's how I've thought it through. And I wonder how you, and I don't know if you, if you like that way I've phrased it. No, I, mean, I think you, that's pretty good. Yeah? Oh, good. Well, that makes me happy. I mean, you, you know. <laughs> you could do my job. <laughs> you were eight years in power. You could do this. No, I mean, you, you know, you've said <laughs> Obama's rise offered you the chances to see that our theory of, of providence and progress that would continue was to see that as the illusion that it was. So, yeah, I would just... Yeah, no, I think, um, I think you're exactly right. I think um, people saw all the celebration and all the, you know, um, good feeling that was generated, and <laughs> they never considered there were other people who were feeling a different kind of way, you know? Um, I, you know, all of these questions go back to the question of patriotism, right? Hmm. And... I don't know what country that's done this yet, but you know, let's take it. Let's take Americans at their word. Let's take the country at its word. It says it's exceptional. It says it's different. So let's try to do something different. You have to love your country the way you love your friends, the way your spouse loves you, right? The people who love you don't blow smoke up your backside. They don't do that. They don't do that. They tell you, you know, hard truths. They love you, but, you know, my wife, you know, something's going wrong, she's going to tell me. Something's going wrong, I'm going to tell her. That's the, that's the yeah. nature of, of, of the relationship. Um, don't mean I don't back her. Don't mean I, you know, I, I don't support her. But when is love between individuals this kind of uncompromising, never questioning? That, that ain't no love. That ain't no love that I would, you know, tell my kid to identify, right. you know, in, in his partner, in his friends. Um, the question, you know, really is, can you get to a place where, and I don't know how you do this, but can you get to a place where, where citizens, you know, are encouraged to see themselves critically, encouraged to see their history critically? I, I don't know, but that strikes me as, as what's necessary. After a short break, more with journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates. This episode is part of On Being's Civil Conversations Project, an evolving adventure in audio, events, resources, and initiatives for planting relationship and conversations around the subjects we fight about intensely and those we've barely begun to discuss. To learn more, visit civilconversationsproject.org. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. To learn more, subscribe to their newsletter, Possibilities, and discover the work Templeton supports on topics from curiosity and kindness to evolution, black holes, and the origins of life. Sign up at templeton.org forward slash possibilities. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with poet, journalist, prophet, ta Coates, in a live event as part of the 2017 Chicago Humanities Festival. The crowd of 1,500 submitted questions, and there was time for a few, read by artistic director Allison Cuddy. So the first question is, how has your Howard experience continued to influence you? And it's signed, heart shape, H-U underscore underscore exclamation. Oh, you clearly didn't go to Howard. (laughs) That is not how you say it. (laughs) 
Um, it had a tremendous influence on me. I didn't know there were black people who liked Marilyn Manson. I just, I, I wasn't aware of that. I didn't know there were black people who had so much money that their parents sent them to school with a car. I, I didn't know that existed. Um, to put this in perspective, I was the first place where I encountered open LGBT people, period. Of any, you know what I mean, any race. It was the first place I saw that. I could walk up on that yard and find people who were deeply into politics. Um, I could find folks that were interested in marketing. I could find folks that were gonna be doctors one day. Um, I could find folks that wanted to be in musical theater. It was all the various 10,000 black people in one spot. And they were beautiful. I mean, just physically beautiful people. You have to understand what that means when you grow up in a culture where black people are not depicted as beautiful. It's just not there. There's a subconscious message that is communicated in the culture that this is what's beautiful, this is what's elegant, this is what's intelligent, this is what's sophisticated, and this is white. It's not you. And for four years, man, I just got shot with an antidote to all of that. And so when I left, sans diploma, but when I left, I felt like I could fight anybody. You understand? Like, I felt like I, I had no fear of, you know, anybody, you know, having, you know, went to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, you should call. I didn't care. I fight anybody. You know what I mean? Like, I felt so armed and confident. It, it's the seed of why, you know, I write sentences like that. I don't care. I, I don't care because I know that it's a group of people that I was, um, who I came of age with, who know exactly what I'm talking about. It was incredible. It's the seed of everything. Uh, what advice would you give on how to best teach history in a way that is honest and accurate? I have no teaching advice at all. I was a terrible student. Uh, you know, I failed my way through high school. I don't know how I got into Howard University, but I failed my way through that too. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know, I'm, I, I have horrible advice in terms of teaching. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> Because one of the things that annoys me is people act like they know everything, That's right? right? Yeah. You know, they just stand up, I'm gonna answer everything. No, you don't know. Come on, be clear about what you know and what you yeah. don't know. And I, I don't, <laughs> come on. Yeah. All right, I'm 17 years old and my generation does not know how to deal with the older generation's stubbornness and unwillingness to oh, change, even though they are in power. What advice do you have? Can, can you repeat that question? <laughs> what? It's a good one. I'm 17 years old, and my generation does not know how to deal with the older generation's stubbornness and unwillingness to change even though they are in power. What advice do you have? <clears throat> Okay, I'm gonna talk about why I don't know. And listen, this, here's the thing that happens. Here's the thing that happens. Um, you are well-researched and knowledgeable about one thing that you've been thinking about a long time, and you've been reading about a long time. That does not make you well-researched and knowledgeable about all things. Um, these are, for instance, that question right there, they're people, activists who spend their lives grappling with that and have spent their lives grappling. I, I'm a writer. Um, I prefer solitude. I prefer to be alone. I prefer to, you know, some distance, you know, from, from, from struggle. I, I like that. that. That's my joy. That's my life experience. Because I think, like, there's this tradition. I get, like, um, this title, like, public intellectual, and I don't like it. Because what it sounds to me is like, you know, people who BS, you know what I mean? Like they're smart about one thing and so, you know, they play into this notion that they're smart about everything else. I, I have not struggled with that at all. I just, I haven't, I haven't. And so like for me to answer would be to pretend as though I had. 
Does that, like, if you want to ask me about, like, writing, I can, you know what I mean, up one side, down the other. I got you. I'm with you. Because I've struggled with that. I think about it. I was thinking about it on the plane today. You know, um, I can't answer. I can't address things that are not things that I've actually struggled with. I'm sorry. I really apologize. Is there, are there two more or something? There's one more. Okay. Okay. Don't worry about it. There's one more. Um, this is not going well. <laughs> it all comes down to this one. Oh. So this is not a question about hope, but it may be related. And okay. it's from uh, North Shore County Day School middle school teachers. So it's back to teachers. Uh-oh. It's how can we help our students remain optimistic under oh this God. administration? <laughs> oh, my God. Are you serious? <laughs> When we ourselves are struggling, so. <laughs> Why would I know that? <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna try. I have to try. Um, how you help your kids? I, so I probably reject the premise of the question. Um, if I were in your class and I put myself back there, I, I don't think even at that age I was looking for hope from my teachers. <laughs> um, I think I was looking for enlightenment from my teachers. Um, I think I was looking for exposure. I think I wanted to see other things about the world. I think I wanted to be exposed to different worldviews. I think I, like, if I were a kid right now, I guess I would want to understand, like, why did they kill Eric Garner? Like, why is that okay? And the answer doesn't have to, you know, like, I don't, I don't need you to make me feel good about that. But I need to know what happened. I just, I need, and people deeply underestimate the freedom that comes for at least understanding. It's like, it's one thing to be terminally ill, right? Like, that's bad enough. But to not understand what's happening to your body. And that's kind of the position I found myself in as a young black. I didn't understand why when I walked out on the street and say it was a girl I liked that lived across North Avenue. Why do I have to bring seven other dudes with me to go see this girl? And when I cut on TV and see the Wonder Years, Kevin Arnold can just take his bike and go see Winnie Cooper. Why? Like, what, what, like, I understand why in terms of the dudes, but what specifically is the process that put, so I probably would want to be pointed, not even would want the answers. Give me the tools. Arm me. Allow me to be able to understand why. You know, that, that probably would be more important to me. That, that's not hope. That's not hope. But um, I think that, that's the sort of perspective I would have come from at that age. I'm Krista Tippett, today with poet-journalist ta Coates as part of On Being's Civil Conversations Project. Hope is not your word. It's not what you offer. But I'm really struck with how you really care about beauty. Mm -hmm. You're passionate about beauty. Mm -hmm. and, and you're a poet. Mm -hmm. I was. You are. But you, I think you, 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 write, you write poetically. Thank you. Right? I mean, you, and you work at that. I mean, it, I do. Yeah. At, I love the way you, you write about, about that. Or I don't know if I saw an interview you gave where you, you know, I, I once talked to a, a scholar of the Hebrew prophets, mm -hmm. and he said the prophets are also always poets mm. because mm. you have to speak in language that is disarming mm -hmm. and that reaches people. Mm -hmm. I was really struck at the beginning of, of your new book, We Were Eight Years in Power. You wrote, you wrote about the process. Um, you said you know, that, that this was created from articles that had been written. And you said, but I also had an urge to make something new of them. This book is made in this way because I enjoyed the challenge of doing so. If I can communicate half of that joy to you, then I will have done my job. Mm -hmm. And again, I just... I feel like that joy that we, we've also like experienced tonight is so much who you are rather than, um, yeah, as I said, you know, when um, Between the World and Me came out, there was this idea of you as angry. Right. So I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here right. as we 
finish, but I don't know what, what the sparks in you. Well, I, it was, um, <clears throat> I always try to, you know, do two things in, in, in the nonfiction, and that is, um, A, I, 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 I do want the argument to be logically correct and to be on point. But, like, that's not enough. It's not enough for you to read that and, you know, walk away and say, hmm, that seems correct. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the writing should be haunting. Mm-hmm. You know, I use that word a lot. Like, it should, you, should, you should really feel it in your bones. Like, you should, you should be disturbed the way I was disturbed. Um, when I was doing the last piece in the book, um, uh, my president was black. I was not sure who was going to win the election. But I wanted folks to feel something about that piece. I just didn't want it to be like a correct piece. So I would play Marvin Gaye's Distant Lover over and over again. And there was something so beautifully wordless in that song, like this longing. The lyrics are actually really simple. But it's the way he mixes this, um, like this beautiful falsetto that Marvin has, you know, this kind of, you know, raspy, you know, soul piece that, that, that he has. And he pulls it all together in such a way that you're like, wow, like my wife is right here, but I miss her too. You know, I feel like, I feel like, you know, you love me. You know, he says, you know, when you love, you took all of me with you. Yeah, that's how I feel. I feel that right now, even though you're right here. And I wanted people to feel that. You know, I wanted them to feel, you know, like, you know, watch that footage of Obama and Michelle and feel when you left, you took all of me with you. Like, you should feel that. You know what I mean? Like, it should be in you. You know what I mean? When you read that piece. You know what I mean? Because I, 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 there was a kind of sadness that I, I could see, you know, among all the black people I knew. You know what I mean? All of them. And I'm not saying it wasn't a sadness among other people, but this is just, you know, get to the general about the specific, and the specific I knew were the black people I, I was around, and they knew. And they knew this even if Hillary had won, that the last eight years had been something that they had never expected, that it was a beautiful thing to be represented in that way. And that's, you know, I'm talking about separate from policy, whatever policy yeah, disagreements yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah. But we, you know, as, as, as black folks, we always, like, got to defend somebody. You know what I mean? And that was, like, a feeling about so many public black people like you know and you got to defend hip-hop I love hip-hop but it's like you got to defend it it's always like an argument you know defend and you never had to defend Barack and Michelle in that way right like you didn't have to do that like it was liberating and again I just want to be clear I'm talking about like I got my policy differences which is something yep. else yep. but as a public image you didn't have to apologize for them you didn't have to do any of that you know what I mean you had, they never made you hang your head you were never ashamed and when that went you know, it was a particular kind of sadness that came. And I was trying to drill <laughs> as much of that sadness in there. Right. It's not enough to just have the facts right. right. You got to get all of that in there, and that becomes word choice and sentences and yeah. going over the sentences over and over and over and over again. Thank you. But I think what that words that are poetic and disturb and that disturb, mm-hmm. that what that makes possible, that is actually really rare and Amer- has become rare in America, that I think we're trying to relearn is disturbing, and yet you you stay with it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think that's why white people love your books and like why they're good well, for let's, us. Let's just really quick. Really quick. <laughs> I just let me see that for one okay, second. Okay. I, I just want, white people don't love my books. So, like, I just want to be clear. The people who read books is a minority. I just want to be really clear about that. Okay, right. okay. There are a lot of white people who don't okay. love my books. That's why you had to go through security on your way in, by the way. Let's just be clear. Okay. Now we're, we're threatening to take not get an unacceptable away. detour here at the end. Why you have become a voice in this moment um, because we do, some of us, a lot of us, I think, do want to be telling these hard truths and feeling them in our bodies. 
And so there is an art to being able to articulate that so that it can hurt and it can be shameful and it can be disturbing and yet we can keep listening and keep thinking about it. I hope so. <laughs> okay. Hannah has a coach. Thank you so much. Ta-Nehisi Coates is a distinguished writer-in-residence at New York University's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. His books include The Beautiful Struggle, Between the World and Me, and most recently, We Were Eight Years in Power, An American Tragedy. He's also the current writer of the Marvel comics The Black Panther and Captain America. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lin, Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, and Colleen Sheck. Special thanks this week to Allison Cuddy, Tiffany Beatty, Kate Samuels, Heidi Hewitt, Rena Rinali, Zachary Williams, Brian Johnson, Alexa Perlmutter, Rory Friedman, Claire Liu, Joe Baruch, and Gautam Shrikashen. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group, the George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project, the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives, and the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.